This is MuggleCast, the Harry Potter podcast discussing everything about J.K. Rowling's Wizarding World. Welcome to MuggleCast episode 362. I'm Andrew, and unfortunately, Micah and Eric both weren't able to make it this week. Um, Eric is celebrating Easter, something I'm not doing. Uh, Micah was supposed to be on the show, but then he fell ill before recording. He's still kind of recovering from something. However, we are still joined by actually a longtime listener of the show who also currently writes for Hypable, Nassim. Welcome to the show, Nassim. Hi, thank you. It's great to be here. Yeah, you. so you've been writing for Hypable for a couple of years, but you've been listening to MuggleCast for ever? So this is really sweet, actually, because I started listening to MuggleCast when I was about 11 years old, and I lived in Paraguay. And at the time, I didn't know a single person who knew what Harry Potter was, who mm. had any Harry Potter books. I don't think they were even for sale in my city in Spanish at the time. So I had no friends who knew what my passion was. Yeah. So MuggleCast was like my mom's way of like helping me not feel lonely. So I kind of grew up with you guys. And so Aww. That's interesting. Wait, really so awesome. like your mom found the podcast? I think she did. I mean, I think, like, I remember my dad found MuggleNet for me. Um, and without intending to, like, got me obsessed with, like, fandom. So maybe he regrets it now. Yeah. Look what I'm now, dad. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but, yeah, and I think, like, I don't really know. I, I think it's my mom because I remember listening to it with my mom. And I remember she was like, oh, what upstanding young gentleman. so we went to like infinitus um and like saw you guys and i was like oh this is the closest i'll ever be oh that's so cute yeah Yeah, you and i haven't met in the hypable era now but um one day one day yeah Yeah, well it's great to at least we live in the same country now (laughs) right yeah closer closer you're you're in the northeast right you're like boston area yeah yeah around here you're, wh- where are you studying at? Uh, Worcester Polytechnic Institute. And you're actually podcasting from a classroom today, right? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> the dorm life. <laughs> Just as the school intended the classrooms to be used. Of course. For <laughs> entrepreneurship, you know? Right. Uh, oh, there you go. Entrepreneurship, yeah. Yeah. I mean, when I was in college, I never podcasted from my dorm. I always went home to New Jersey where I actually am this weekend to podcast because I had a roommate and like, I don't even know if he knew about the podcast. I assume he did. Um, But yeah, I always went home to do it anyway. um, So we're going to talk about a couple of stories. We're recording on April fool's day. I had a little fun on hypable with uh, Pottermore, which we'll talk about in a moment. Um, But I wasn't on the show last week. I was avoiding Micah. I was in New York City, but I was avoiding Micah as he uh, brought up (laughs) on the episode. Uh, I stopped into the Cursed Child, which was absolutely the the venue. I didn't go inside other than the gift shop, but the venue on the outside looks absolutely beautiful. Are you going to it in New York? I forget. Um, so I wrote an article saying like, why am I mad? I didn't get Chris child tickets when I hate Chris child. (laughs) I should tell you enough. I'm like, I like, I should probably use the opportunity. Like since I'm not, I'm like a whole continent away, but still kind of like, like, 
I don't know if I want to give them my money. I'm so mad at them. I'm, I should probably not be this bitter, but <laughs> you know that if I go, like I went to London and I saw the outside, like I went to see the outside of the theater and I was like, Oh wow. Yeah. And, and then I was like, you hypocrite. <laughs> so <laughs> I just hated myself the whole time. I'll yeah. probably do the same thing if I go to New York. When the photos of the Broadway setup first, were released i wasn't too impressed i was like what is that giant wing on the side of the building and why is the nest like on the rooftop it's so far away it looked dumb but then seeing in person i was actually kind of blown away it was very cool to see in real life so i stopped into the gift shop um which is actually open to the public for anybody who uh is in the new york area but doesn't have tickets or just wants to get a little taste of the cursed child they actually have a gift shop that's open i believe on the 42nd street side of the building and it's open during the daytime. Not, it seems like they close it off before shows. So you got to go long before the show on any given day. But anyway, um, it was actually really nice. And you can tell, like we knew this already. They they redid the entire theater inside. And just from the gift shop alone, you can tell how much that that this redesign was all about making it very pottery. Like there's Hogwarts emblems on the doors, um, the the carpets, like all magical and whimsical. And the photos that we've seen so far from inside the Lyric Theater, there's like this giant Patronus mural on in a circular room. And just the photos of the theater inside look amazing. Um, so I think they just went all out knowing that Harry Potter is probably going to be at this theater for probably like a decade or more. <laughs> it's wow. just a total harry potter takeover i'm actually really impressed by what they did and i couldn't wait so i did buy a uh, cursed child hoodie and uh cursed child program and a cursed child mug what other kind of merch do they have do they have like stuffed delphies or something stuffed delphies no but they do have stuffed owls uh which micah will be very pleased by they had house shirts with the cursed child versions of the house emblems which were kind of cool. I spent. Are they different? They are different from like the movie one and the, yeah, from the movie yeah. one. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Time to write a new article. Oh, Why I hate the cursed child house emblems. <laughs> <laughs> I spent. How much? How much do you think a a hoodie, a mug, and a program costs total? Oh my god! Um, I just, I just like. In December, I went to Wizarding World, and the robes were like $140. Oh, yeah. And my little 10-year-old sister was just like walked out and saying, why is everything so expensive in America? (laughs) (laughs) Especially uh, the theme parks. Oh, my God. The robes are so expensive. I I would say you paid like $200. Oh, not that much. No, uh, but $100, which was still a lot for three things. Um, well, I, the hoodies, like the hoodies I've seen, are so expensive. Like, yeah, so yeah. Expensive. The hoodie's cool. It's kind of it's like a matte, glittery effect on it. So, you know, like if a shirt has, like if a shirt is like sparkling, you would kind of presume it's for women. But this one, like it's sparkling, but it's matte, so it's not like shining. So I was like, oh, I, this seems unisex. So I think so. So that's why I bought it, and it says. It has the Cursed Child nest emblem on the shoulder, and it says Cursed Child Broadway, I think, on the back of it. It's, I don't know why I bought it. I just, I was just excited to see Cursed Child there. So 
life. <laughs> Don't let hold you back, Andrew. You can I, get all the glittery clothes you want. Yes, yes. I have to say, though, I bought this mug. It's a tin mug, which I'd never had one of those before. And then, like, I get home and I pour coffee into it. I'm like, I'm going to enjoy some coffee in my new Cursed Child mug. Well, the tin mug is not meant for hot drinks. I, I practically burnt my hand off when I when I picked it up with the coffee inside of it. It doesn't, like, insulate. So yeah. if you buy the tin mug, I do not recommend hot drinks in it. I mean, I guess it's for water. I always felt weird when people had, like, tin glasses. Well, cups, it's not glasses. Yeah. Um, well, like, but, yeah. they need a warning. I might sue them. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, Mike, Eric, and I will be going to Cursed Child in a few weeks from now. We're now in Cursed Child month for us, so um, we'll have a lot more to say there. And to you listeners out there, since we recently completed the 777 challenge, we are going to do some sort of live stream after we see the show so we can give everybody our instant reactions to the show and the theater and all that. So that'll be later this month. Uh, so today is April Fool's Day. I wrote an article on Hypeable called Exclusive First Look. Pottermore is turning into Pottermorum, their latest stab at fitting in with fan sites. <laughs> I came up with this idea yesterday. My April Fool's joke is that Pottermore still wants to be hip and relevant but they know that the current Pottermore isn't working. And since they just laid off all of their writers, they're asking the fans to generate all the content. So now it's like an old school, early 2000 forum with uh, several sub forums, like officially sanctioned theories, officially sanctioned news, officially sanctioned fan fiction. <laughs> and the scene you saw this this morning and actually believed it. And I'm an idiot because, like, I, I've seen the lineup of, like, the articles. Yeah. <laughs> like, I knew that this was a joke, but still, like, I logged into Facebook and I saw, oh, my God, I hate them. This is perfect timing. Um, you know, <laughs> of course, we're going to do that with fan fiction. Yeah. I expected it. No. How can I fall for this stuff? I'm sorry. You're not alone, though. I mean, it's only been up for about an hour. And a lot of people are saying, like, wow, I actually believe that. Because when you read it, it's not totally, like, off base from what's been going on. Like, and the whole fan fiction thing is, like, what Marvel did. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, my fan fiction paragraph I'm I'm particularly proud of. Playing off the site's Potter Moore, more Potter name, the forum will also welcome fan fiction to further open up the Wizarding World. However, keeping with guidelines set by the Cursed Child and Fantastic Beast 2, no LGBTQ plus romances will be permitted. Oh, man. <laughs> and then I wrote. You know that they would do that, though. They would so do that. Oh, yeah. That said, Potter Morum has buckled to fan pressure in at least one regard, Johnny Depp. One area of the forum will be exclusively dedicated to complaining about how ugly and terrible the Grindelwald actor is. Potter Morum will even allow fans to suggest who would be a way better Grindelwald, but fans must acknowledge in the terms of service agreement that WB is never, ever replacing Depp. <laughs> when I set out to write this, I didn't intend for it to become so savage, but then it did. Oh, well. I'm just imagining like Johnny Depp like having to negotiate with Warner Brothers and they're just like, actually, like we're just doing this to appease the fans. It'll actually be better for you in the long run. Yeah, right, right. This is smart for your career, Johnny. 
<laughs> what I love about this is people at Pottermore definitely got to look at this article. <laughs> what the hell is this? Oh, it's an but April Fool's the, joke. The recently fired staff is going to appreciate it. Yeah, I think I think so. They seemed a little bitter in that interview with BuzzFeed. I would have been bitter. Uh, but I, I wanted to bring that up on today's show because you actually wrote an article on Hypable after the writers were laid off, which, of course, by the way, is very sad that these people were, were losing their jobs. And I imagine it was a very cool job writing for Pottermore. What do you, what do you think went, went wrong with Pottermore? What was your premise for this article? What, what did you have to say about it? Well, I don't know. I feel like, in a way, the plight of the writers kind of, um, I felt for them a lot. Because I remember when they had the the announcement that they were going to be hiring writers. And I remember being like, oh, you know, that would be cool. And then being like, no, it wouldn't. You hate Pottermore. <laughs> and then being like, okay, fine. <laughs> but, um, and so I remember having those feelings and then being like, well, it would still be pretty cool. And then it hasn't even been that much time, honestly. And now they're all being laid off. So I, I don't know. I feel like it's just one more thing kind of in the line of things that Pottermore can't seem to get right. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I know they talked about this in the last episode, but this whole idea of like, what, what are we <laughs> as Pottermore? Like, is it a promo site? Is it J.K. Rowling's new blog? Is it um, supposed to be like a social networking community for Harry Potter fans? Mm-hmm. It's never really been clear. And I think especially with the like with J.K. Rowling's statement about uh, the casting, I kind of expected that to be on Pottermore. So I remember being confused about that because that would have made sense. Yeah. What do you think Pottermore should do? What do you think they should be? I have no idea. I think they should just kind of like let it go, you know. Let it go. <laughs> should they just shut down? Like, I don't think they should shut down, but I feel like this is the thing. Like, their content was never meant to like be eternal. Like, we wouldn't be logging in every day to yeah. see new info. Like, I I believe that that's what they thought they would be able to do. But ever since the beginning, like, that's not what this was conducive to. Like, we had. Um, bonus information which is interesting you read it once and you're great um but i don't even go back to the site like i write a lot of fan fiction so sometimes i i look things up so like i remember looking up like drago's backstory like well it's not backstory what happened after the war things like that i remember looking that up but i didn't go to the site itself because i was like i don't want to click through all those things to try and find where it is so i would end up going to like the potter wiki or something So even in that, like, of course, the interface was beautiful. It was a beautiful experience to look at once, to do your sorting. But then you're not going to come back. Like, I I don't know. And I know among the fans, it's still a pretty small fraction of people who even, like, have have an account in Pottermore. um, Or people just do it to get sorted and then they leave. Right. I think they just need to get down to the bare bones of what has been a hit for them. The Sorting Hat, the Patronus Quiz, Hogwarts Quiz, Ilvermorty Quiz, Wand Selection. 
the new writing, the original writing by J.K. Rowling. That stuff was amazing when it first came out. We were all looking forward to reading stuff like that. So just keep all those things and then also be an official news resource. But stick to news. Don't like speculate in your articles. Like, is this going to happen? I don't know. We're official, but we don't know. It's just it just comes off strange. Um, so official news, the the tests, the writing by J.K. Rowling. And I guess these character bios, I mean, they have them. May as well keep them. And uh, yeah, and that's it. I, I, ca- I can see why they got rid of the BuzzFeedy type articles, because they they just that's just not what belongs on an official resource. Mm-hmm. So I think that they could have yeah, like they something they could do. Like I don't think they're ever going to be what their original goal was, like the digital heart of the wizarding world. Like but they could have like set a precedent by actually putting everything in one place. So if we had Rowling giving us messages through Pottermore if we had all of these statements there if they were releasing like exclusive interviews things like that I guess like it could be the platform for their promotion of the movies that are coming up mm-hmm. um still I mean that's still not necessarily something that's gonna last like be relevant forever right. um but they could have like a different angle they could approach us more as like we are the Harry Potter movies, right? Right. The bias that the the writers have been forced to have when they're writing statements or articles, like not being able to talk about Johnny Depp, that's just so sad. Yeah. Um, and they're basically not high, like they weren't being hired to write articles; they were being hired to write promotion. Yeah. Like this is publicity at that point. We can't really say anything against it yeah yeah exactly all right well we do have an interview on today's show with the creators of the harry potter film concert series micah and eric conducted that interview earlier this week but before we get to that this week's episode of MuggleCast is sponsored by blue apron they are the number one fresh ingredient and recipe delivery service in the country and for good reason Their mission is to make incredible home cooking accessible to everyone. They've achieved this by supporting a more sustainable food system, setting the highest standards for ingredients, and building a community of home chefs like me. (laughs) Let's talk about those ingredients. I absolutely love opening up a Blue Apron box and diving into what they've sent. It's so fun to go through the ingredients. They're clearly labeled, and it's kind of surreal opening up this box with this gorgeous-looking food. It's hard to believe that it was sent through the mail. (laughs) My boyfriend and I recently cooked up some enchiladas, which we had with my brother one night. Um, I Instagrammed that, by the way. Took a fun photo of them eating. And then another night, we made what Blue Apron called a DIY pizza party. This one was so fun. They give you the base ingredients for the pizza, and then they give you several toppings options. And then everyone in your party can make their pizza exactly the way they want it. That was just like a fun little, it felt like a game night. It was, it was, it was very, it was a very clever idea, I thought. And that's the kind of fun you have with Blue Apron because no meals repeat within a year. You're always getting something new instead of repeating the same old recipes you lean on from week to week. So I want our listeners to try Blue Apron. They're offering our listeners $30 off your first delivery. When it comes to dinner, let Blue Apron take care of the planning and shopping while you do the cooking and the eating. 
Check out this week's menu and get your $30 off at blueapron.com slash mugglecast. Blue Apron is a better way to cook. And Asim, if you ever come to Chicago, let me know and I'll make you some Blue Apron. Nice. You're making me hungry. <laughs> have you eaten yet? We're, it's kind of early. No. Did you have a, you didn't have a pre-podcast meal? I did not. Oh. I, I like to live dangerously. You know? I podcast without eating. Oh, I have to eat before podcasting. Anyway, let's jump over now to our interview conducted by Micah and Eric. We're here joined by Mr. Justin Freer and Brady Bobien, both of Cine Concerts, who are currently touring the world doing Harry Potter in concert and joined with Micah here. And we're really excited to get to talk to these guys about that experience and what they're currently working on. So, hey, guys, how you doing? Very well. Thank you. How are you? Thanks for having us. Yeah, it's uh, glad we could get this together. We're both doing well, I think. We're, we're coming off of a, a high news week with the recent uh, Fantastic Beasts 2 trailer that came out that uh, gave us a lot of discussion points. So we're revved up and really excited about the future of Harry right now. Very good. So tell us about this concert series we keep hearing about. How did it originally come together? Yeah, well, we're, we're nearly two years into its first premiere. You know, we started this in 2016, at least the first performance. And, you know, we, we worked on it for some time prior to that, you know, building things out and getting things ready. But but I think this, you know, is, is born as many of our projects are born from a, a similar kind of point of conception. Um, Brady and I very much love the art of film and love the art of film music. And and to be able to share some of the greatest music written for our craft that connected to some of the most iconic films made um, in film history is a great pleasure and to share that with the world and, and give a unique concert experience to highlight these two pieces of art is uh, it's really quite humbling and, and it's it's great fun at the same time. So uh, the two of you were both co-founders of this Harry Potter concert series? Yes, sir. Did you know each other beforehand or did this sort of come together through this or? Yeah, we did actually. We were friends long before we decided to embark on this great adventure together. And we just connected over um, some of the things Justin just mentioned, film, film music, you know, the transportive effect of movies, um, the best ones, the worst ones. And it was out of this love of the art form and the connected art form of film music in particular that we um, decided to uh, uh, create this adventure and mostly out of um, a desire to see these movies with orchestra. And it just so happened that a lot of people around the world uh, wanted to join us on that journey. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and this is Micah. I got a chance to uh, get a little bit of a taste of this down in Orlando at the uh, celebration of Harry Potter with the Orlando Philharmonic. And it was really cool to experience in person. I'm just wondering, you know, how much um, the film composers have had any input in terms of how you structure your performances, or is that all really left up to you to decide? Well, I think the composers for each of these films have given us the ultimate input, and that is the score. You know, I mean, the music score from beginning to end, uh, you know, when they wrote the music and through to when the music is performed on stage live with the film, it's truly their input. And it's it's our job to find a way to represent with the highest possible quality what their intentions were originally, what the filmmakers' intentions were, not the least of which, of course, is J.K. Rowling, what her intentions were and recreating this experience for people in a live environment so that they can enjoy what they know and love, but in a new, fresh, and unique way. 
And it's much more visceral, you know, sitting with thousands of other people listening to this music, you know, breathe life into the film. You can physically feel uh, many of, of these powerful moments, you know, the melodies, the harmonies, the rhythms, uh, the different instruments on stage. So I think the composers certainly have input and they're, they're all aware um, of what we're doing. And it's very important to us uh, as, a, as an entity at Cineconcerts and as artists and creators that we are doing the best possible uh, thing possible, you know, with, with their music. And, and um, you know, I hope, I hope in some small, humble way we are. I, I hope that we're, we're doing their music and, and the filmmakers justice. And a great deal of stuff goes on behind the scenes to make sure that happens from rehearsing scores with makeshift orchestras here to editing the score books and making continual notes to make sure that they sound the way they should sound. A lot goes into the idea of recreating the original intent of the music. That's quite a quite an operation to get from the point where we start with a, uh, creating a scorebook to people hearing something the way they remember it exactly with no difference in the music. Yeah, I, I read uh, an, an old interview in a live magazine uh, when Cineconcerts, when Harry Potter in Concert first launched. Uh, you guys are performing with local orchestras, aren't you, in each of these various cities? Yes, I think that's one of the greatest parts of, of what we do is being able to celebrate this great music with the local musicians and the local patrons. And I think that there's a, a connective tissue that of course exists between those patrons and the local musicians that we cannot recreate by touring our own orchestra from city to city. So it, you know, it kind of re-energizes um, rehearsing uh, perhaps Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone for the 45th or 50th time. <laughs> it, it really does. And, and, and I, I say that with, uh, you know, a little bit of a smile, but, but with the utmost uh, respect for what this music is and what the talent levels are of these orchestras that we work with around the world. It's great to celebrate these over and over because every orchestra is different. Every orchestra has their own quality, their own sound. And being able to share this music once again with the next orchestra and the next city is a, is a real joy. Could you take us through that rehearsal process just when you're when you're setting up and ready to perform in a new city and you're you're beginning to rehearse what what does that look like? How many rehearsals do you guys get before you go on? There's a there's a little bit of little bit of fright and terror I think before we, <laughs> we begin any of these. I mean, we have a great deal of music to learn and usually only two rehearsals. And, you know, to kind of put things in perspective, when they were recording, and it's not an apples to apples comparison, but when they were recording, um, you know, these music scores for the films, they often had two to three weeks to learn the music, to perfect it, to take, you know, various different takes and get it to where it was. And as I said, not an apples to apples comparison, but, but a two hours or more of music in every film in the Harry Potter film franchise, and to have five hours generally of rehearsal time is a great task for even the best musicians in the world. And we're so lucky to work with many of them. Um, so, you know, we have a great deal to get through. Two rehearsals later, we're generally performing. Um, three performances later, we're out of that city, done and dusted, and we're on to the next one. So it's, it's, it's a lot of fun. Amazing. Yeah, and, and just given that this is all happening live and, and in sync with a movie, how do you get the orchestra to stay in sync with what's going on on screen? There's a number of technical things that we do to keep them together. Um, you know, I have a little mini movie screen in front of the podium um, that has what we call streamers and punches, which are basically visual cues to help me see where the big changes are coming, you know, perhaps references to where, you know, the beginning of each measure or each bar is, things like this. 
there there are a lot of conductors that use what we call click track, which is an audible tempo, you know, in the ear. Um, I have a tendency to avoid that, um, and all of our projects have a tendency to avoid that because I, I believe uh, very firmly that the musicality can be much more rich and, and natural without a click track, but you can maintain the same level of accuracy without a click as long as you are very close to what uh, the video is and you know precise with it. So, and then of course the orchestra they have to play together, and and this is no small task. You know, a, a great orchestra is is like a great flock of birds flying from left to right, up and down, and sometimes at a moment's notice. And and uh, so there's a, there's a great deal that goes behind it, but uh, you know. It, it all works out at the end. You know, if, if we get to the end of the film and we're all together, it's a minor miracle. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I think this is Brady. I, I think that, that one of the things within the previous question and this one, rehearsals being so short and um, keeping the audience, I mean, the, uh, the orchestra and sync speak to the base level of incredible knowledge that the average classical musician has throughout the world in almost every country. I mean, we don't really consider this to be common in almost any other cultural art form. You know, artists differ from country to country. Their styles differ. Their the things they want to say, you know, if they're a studio artist, electronic artist, what have you, is always different. And sometimes they're better or worse trained. But classic <laughs> music is something that for centuries has required a level of training that starts when you're very young and never ends. <laughs> pretty much. And the fact yeah. that we can do in Rome or we can do in Chile or we can do in Mexico City or Indianapolis, two rehearsals with those same orchestras and get to the same place at the end of um, the engagement speaks to that incredible level of common knowledge and, and expertise, which is so u- unique to classical music. Mm. And has that also have you also seen reflected in that just the deep appreciation for this series as a whole when you've gone to different places? I think there's several levels of appreciation. You know, they they exist, of course, at the the films level, the music scores level, the music scores level as it works with the film. I mean, there's so many levels of appreciation, and it, that's one of the things that never gets old is just hearing and seeing and feeling how audiences around the world react to this amazing world that J.K. Rowling has created. And each director has given his own stamp um, through the films. Each composer has given his own stamp through the films. And, uh, you know, they're constantly reminding us through either sound or, or color or movement um, what, what it takes to move us as humans, what it takes to suck us into a story and transport us into a world where, you know, suspension of disbelief is, becomes reality. And I think that mm-hmm. that is an incredible call to order that we all have as artists and to accomplish that and accomplish that eight times in a row in this franchise is no small feat. And it's, it's wonderful to be a part of it. I wanted to ask um, about, so I, I've yet to see uh, Harry Potter in concert just yet. I, I certainly hope to uh, to catch a, an upcoming performance. But uh, Brady, I, I, I know you have this motion graphic uh, company, Interlace Media, that's working with uh, working on these shows. What is the motion graphic aspect of these concerts? Can you talk a little bit about how that fits into uh, Harry Potter in concert? Well, yeah, well, my history in L.A. has been with, you know, designing visual effects and uh, creative advertising, visual manifestations of movies and 
uh, appreciating the visual side of the, 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 mo- the movie business. I think what we tried to do on these shows is make sure that the visual appreciation of the movie is on par with the music. We spend a lot of time calibrating the projectors as best we can from hall to hall. It's always a challenge because the halls are smaller or larger or the screen is smaller or larger. We try to get it as large as we can. We try to use the the highest luminance projectors possible, but there's always the understanding that the visual and the auditory are interconnected in film and um, making sure that that experience is as good as possible along with the with the orchestra is something that was always important to me. But in general, just my appreciation for how these different, like if you just look at Harry Potter as an isolated piece of creative in, in our film history, it's some of the most gorgeous usage of visual effects um, you can think of. It's extremely organic. Uh, they're integrated into the storyline well, and they're concurrent with the fantastical or imaginative nature of the movies in general so the it's it's a beautiful pairing of visual effects technology with creative intent of the storytelling from jk rowling as manifested in movies um it's it's a really nice example of those two art forms intertwining so just as a fan and an appreciator of graphics and motion graphics and visual effects i find the evolution of visual effects in the movie and its application to the storyline, really, really amazing to watch. You know, from the first movie to Alfonso Cuaron's version, which was a kind of a, a little bit of a darker, more serious imagination of some of the things like The Whomping Willow and The Marauder's Map, all the way through, you know, the later movies. Um, to see the effects and graphics evolve with the storyline is, is, is really a fun part of the process. And kind of going off of that, um, do you ever take a look out into the audience? Do you watch their reaction as the performance is going on? And, and kind of what do you see in their faces as they're as they're looking back? I think Brady's got a, a lot more experience know, knowing <laughs> and feeling that because you know a lot of the, t- the, the things that he produces from the the ground is uh, you know kind of around the hall. I, I can't turn around. The moment I turn around, we're uh, we're behind by 0.5 seconds. So, <laughs> <laughs> as as uh, conductor of the show, <laughs> yeah. Well, you can you can feel their energy though for sure. I mean, you you, you can. It's uh, um, I, I've said this a number of times, and and I'm happy to say it again here. But one of my my favorite things with with this Harry Potter film concert series is being able to hear the laughter of children in the hall, and that I can hear and I can appreciate with my own children and. And um, it, that's one of my my favorite, most magical experiences. It's just to hear the different versions of of their energy and excitement. You know, some of them might might scream out. You know, in a scene that, that another might not. Some some are scared. Some are happy. Some are laughing. You know, it's it's really amazing. Yeah, this is Brady again. So the, the, Justin alluded to it earlier, but the suspension of disbelief is something that's always been inherent in movie watching from the beginning, and it's kind of gotten harder to do that. In, in the last 10 or 15 years, for some reason, uh, maybe the movie theaters are not as magical as they once were. But the usage of live classic music musicians and, and the live orchestra experience helps reignite, I think, that suspension of disbelief. Again, at least it helps people get there faster. So the first thing I thought of when you when you said, you know, do I ever watch the audience? I do. And I remember watching my dad watch uh, for the prisoners of, uh, of Azkaban and seeing him get sucked into the, 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 the movie 
itself and the narrative itself immediately when the music started, because that charge of auditory energy, I think, helped him pay attention to what was happening and forget that he was uh, where he was and when he was and imagine himself in the movie space. So if anything, I think one of the great kind of byproducts of our shows is it allows people to transport themselves into the world of Harry Potter more fully and more in the spirit of the original books and uh, the original movies when we all first saw them. I, I know you guys were down at the celebration. I'm sure you probably walked away with a lot of good feedback you know, from that, from people who had been to the shows uh, and seen what you do. What, what, what are sort of the, the feedback that you guys are getting off of these concerts and the various, I see you guys have been to like 38 countries already. That's super, super impressive. Uh, like what is the, the response that you're getting from people? you know, after they see this? I, I think that it's safe to say it's overwhelmingly positive. And I think, you know, to use that word again, uh, overwhelming, people are overwhelmed with what this this is. Um, you know, I think that one of the things that we forget, among many, you know, when we're watching a movie in a movie theater in your home living room with family, friends, you know, whatever, it are the elements that go into creating the experience that you fall in love with. And one of the most primary I, I think, and not just as a musician, but I think in general, what drives emotional ups and downs um, is very often the music. And our journey through the storytelling uh, that the director has in store for us is often told through the hands and ears and eyes and heart of the composer. And people realize that more and more as they see these. They, they, they come out saying many similar things Depending, not even just Harry Potter, I mean, all the things that we do, um, because the experience is, is powerful. That, wow, I never realized just how important Voldemort's theme was to Voldemort. You know, I mean, it might, it might sound silly. <laughs> yeah. it, it might sound silly, but it's true. You know, I didn't realize that one of the reasons why I feel like I'm flying with Hedwig is because the way that John Williams constructs Hedwig's theme. Absolutely. You know, and, and these things are often unquestioned and just taken for granted. And, you know, I think it's wonderful that here we are with this global opportunity to introduce into people's minds and hearts one of the primary reasons why we love film. And and uh, I hope that we can continue doing more of it. Um, I see on the, the website, you guys are actually already doing some Goblet of Fire performances in certain cities. Is that correct? They're coming up big time. That's amazing. So uh, how long do you think that you, you guys will be doing this concert series for? Um, you know, and, 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 and it's not too late to catch philosophers slash sorcerer's stone some places, is it? No, we have them playing all over the world still The you know, Harry Potter and the sorcerer's stone in North America and the philosopher's stone, as you said, elsewhere. And there's a lot of, um, you know, beginning performances taking place around the world. And I mean, what a wonderful thing that, that we'd be able to, we're able to celebrate all eight of them in, in these cities, you know, as part of a cycle, it's part of. I mean, it's very Wagnerian, right? I mean, you know, the, the ring cycle is, is very similar to this. Uh, and the celebratory ex- nature of this experience is one that uh, can only be celebrated, I think, by having that journey from film to film, from score to score. And yeah, I mean, absolutely. The first Harry Potter film is, is out there in, in, in droves still. Uh, so how long are you expecting for it to run? And, and are you looking to return to specific cities with each film or kind of, you know, nearby cities? What's like, what's the goal there as far as longevity and for these concert series to continue um, throughout the next several years? 
I think the length of the series uh, comes down to a lot of variables, but one of them, one of the biggest driver uh, drivers of the of those variables is um, whether or not the orchestra cycles through quickly or slowly. Some orchestras prefer to go one per year. Others might do two or three in a season. Uh, it really just kind of depends on the market, the patrons, how the orchestra likes to run run things. And uh, But I think the longevity of this, I, I, I can't speak to that. I don't know. I mean, we're surprised every day just how how amazingly strong this world is, how the films, the music scores are, people's connection to the Harry Potter brand. And I hope that just this goes on and on and on. I hope that we continue to celebrate this for as long as the world allows us to. For sure. For sure. So now we have a, uh, a couple more personal questions, I guess. Uh, what is your favorite Harry Potter film? Uh, my favorite film is the prisoner of Azkaban. I was just, um, so impressed with the choice of director on that movie, his handling of the material, his evolution of, you know, a very sensitive uh, idea, which is that these kids are getting older and they're embracing more adults or mature themes in their own life. And the fears are getting slightly mature, kind of balancing the spirit of, of the series with the, um, with the kind of more serious or, or complicated take on the world, I feel like was done very deftly. And um, the music is incredible in that movie is incredible in all the movies, but it, I think um, in that movie in particular, there's so many different styles of music that harmonize. Mm. I really appreciate that, uh, that film, uh, especially. Justin. Azkaban, my favorite by far. Oh, man. Okay, well, we're solid on that front. Love it, love it. Yeah, I do recall listening to that uh, score for the first time uh, and, you know, things like the Night Bus theme are like nothing I had ever heard before. And to know it's still Williams, you know, the same composer who did Hedwig's theme, and it works with with this film, with this new bold film that Quaron is creating, I can absolutely see why it would be uh, anybody who knows anything about movies' uh, favorite favorite film well the music spans i mean hundreds centuries worth of music history and you know <laughs> you've got renaissance music you have medieval sounds here and there you've got as you said you know 1950s to 60s progressive jazz uh, yeah. colliding with a uh, very traditional kind of john williams-esque things that we know him for and i think one of the great geniuses um in our music history of course is john williams but one of i think the hidden things about him that that um, I don't think a lot of people know, at least not as, as many people as there are fans. I, I believe that his some of his real geniuses in jazz, you know, we know him for so many different things, you know, whether or not it's Jaws or Star Wars or Harry Potter or Schindler's List or E.T. But I think some of his most amazing work is has been done in, in the, the field of jazz and it's just his sounds, the way he plays piano. Um, that's one of the things that make his orchestral music very unique is his jazz influences. You hear it everywhere and you hear it all throughout Azkaban. And it's certainly one of my favorite scores as well. Uh, that is our next question. As far as, you know, favorite score of the HP films is, is, is Azkaban still your favorite score? Or when you're looking into, you know, five, six, seven, eight, uh, you know, what, what would you say is your favorite score of the Harry Potter films to both of you? Yeah, Azkaban for me. It's movie score. Boom, boom. Both of them. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I agree. Totally. That's, 
as soon as that hippogriff takes off and soars over the lake, I mean, it, there's this, you know, you're reminded of all the moments when your imagination took flight for lack of a better explanation and every other John Williams <laughs> movie, which we remember from our, our childhoods. It's interesting. I, I think you may be persuading two people on uh, on this podcast for, I think, since its inception that have said that Prisoner of Azkaban is our least favorite film. But I think <laughs> now we're going to have to go and reassess all that. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 tough looking at it as a literature ad- adaptation. But as a film, I don't think it can be argued how yeah, you're right. amazing it is but 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 absolutely i i think that uh movies and and all of the things you guys have talked about uh with us to, you know today showcase the experience and the ability of of traveling to a fantasy world through film i know you're both uh you know in the music what other movie scores stand out i know you mentioned jaws and and things but what what are your f- sort of all-time favorite movie scores outside of Harry Potter, just as sort of a wrap-up question. Wow, that's that's always a difficult one to answer, and a, and a, I'll, I'll attempt to make it very short-winded because we could be here for another thirty minutes. Um, <laughs> you know, I I really really love the golden age of Hollywood. Uh, there's a reason why they call it the golden age, right? And certainly the music falls into that category. I mean, I adore what Max Steiner did for the industry. I mean, King Kong is, is certainly one of my favorite scores that he's ever written. I love The Treasure of the Sierra Madre. Uh, what an, an, an incredibly unique and, and gifted score. Anything by Korngold, you know, Seahawk and King's Row and, you know, The Adventures of Don Juan and, and Robin Hood. I mean, wow, I'm an amazing composer. But I think one of my all-time favorite scores, perhaps a bit more modern, I and I, I sing this 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 tune to my children at least two or three times a week. I just adore uh, the music from Rudy by Jerry Goldsmith, and I, I think that that's some of some of his finest work. Um, you know, while not the same level as like a, a Star Trek the motion picture or a Papillon or a Basic Instinct, the simplicity in that score is uh, unmatched and in some ways. And anyway, I, again, I could go on and on, and, and uh, Brady's got a lot of fun ones too. No, some of them are all very similar. I mean, I, Lawrence of Arabia and Marie Jarre, is, it, it was one of the first times that I actually noticed film music. And so did David Lean so much so that he plays the, the score over black before the movie begins, just so people understood that um, it was a major component of his film. And it was the first time I actually connected, um, you know, that that feeling that I that I felt with those incredible 70 millimeter shots of the desert and then having mm. a comparative emotional experience with the music um, and having them play together perfectly was one of my first experiences with the how the, those two art forms when when working in concert um, deliver a, a transportive experience like no other but I mean there's there's so many and, and you no know, I think the mission from Ennio Morricone stands out too, just for its simplicity and the reoccurring of the themes on small instruments and in orchestral form um, from an oboe to yeah. a four orchestra. It, it, that is a wonderful kind of example of how a just a few simple themes can sound completely otherworldly and then get integrated into the main themes of the rest of the movie and move you in different ways. That's real, real, real cool. Um, yeah, I actually, I just saw, uh, Star Trek, the motion picture, mm-hmm. uh, for the first time the other day. And I was also wowed by the score and, and just these massive 
worlds uh, that are built through music and film music. I definitely have to check out more of the classics and I haven't seen Rudy. So I've got to definitely, definitely look that one up for sure. Hmm. Rudy. I got to go listen. Rudy. <laughs> Rudy. 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 <laughs> Uh, and I think both Eric and I need to go check out the uh, Prisoner of Azkaban soundtrack again. Yeah. Beautiful. That's so beautiful. I mean, John wrote um, incredible music for this film. I, I, it's one of my favorite scores that he's ever composed. And and I just love the the historical journey that exists in that music. It, it really is significant. I'm a huge fan of Hook, but uh, I will absolutely give the Prisoner of Azkaban score another shot. Fair enough. <laughs> Um, gentlemen, we want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. Thank you as well. Yeah, thank you. And um, if uh, you know, listeners want to find out about the latest uh, going on with the concert series, just check out uh, the website. Is that the best place to go? Yes, sir. Harry Potter, HarryPotterInConcert.com. Perfect. Perfect. Well, thank you both so much. Thank you. Enjoy the rest of your day. Bye-bye. Good luck. Good luck with the rest of the series. Thank you very much. All right, great interview. To wrap up today's show, we're going to listen to some voicemails. Here's our first one. Hi, guys. This is Morgan Colling. I just wanted to give some of my feedback on the new Fantastic Beasts trailer as a whole, since you guys have already done a great job going into the specifics. Uh, for me, I can't stop thinking about the fact that J.K. Rowling and her team know that we as fans will dissect the trailer and look at every shot that's available to us. And with the Harry Potter series, J.K. Rowling was able to throw people off of what was going to happen in the books, so my question is, do you think she's able to do the same with the trailers for the movies? And how much of what we have been theorizing do you think is something that she's planted in the trailers for us to think about? Let me know your thoughts on this and keep up the great work. Thanks. Bye. Yeah, that's a good question. I don't think that she has much say in what's happening in the trailer, actually. You're right, though. You have to think that that there's purposely some clever hinting going on in the trailer it may just be that jk rowling's writing naturally with hints and whatnot come through so well in all of her writing that it naturally shows up in the trailer but yeah i i I, because like normally with with movies these studios actually hire like outside companies to put the trailers together so i don't know it's it's a good question I, i would like to think that they're purposely trying to get us to theorize about certain things that they put in the trailer. I'm sure that they give them lists of things that they're not allowed to show, which is, I was kind of surprised that they, that they even showed us Credence. I was, I mean, we all kind of knew he was going to come back, but I thought they were going to save him a surprise. Um, But I guess that means that there are more surprising things in the movie than just that. I also think that they're definitely keeping from us Dumbledore with his half moon spectacles. Because that's totally a thing, and it's probably just going to be like the last, the last scene of the movie where he receives his new spectacles in the mail or something, and he just puts them on and looks into a camera, and it, it ends. And he and he says something epic like, "It's time to fly. <laughs> Let's go, Newt. Do you want a lemon drop? <laughs> <laughs> it's time for me to tell you everything. Oh God." Well, one person they did hide from the trailer was Nicholas Flamel. Oh. And then, like, the young Grindelwald, the young Dumbledore, young, young Dumbledore. Do you think they're going to show us young, young? 
Yeah, well, they hired people for those. Yeah. There's going to be flashback scenes. Yeah, didn't you read that article on Pottermore? Come on. <laughs> I'm just looking at it now, and it says, Hogwarts, you have explored zero of 100 locations. I feel like such a oh. fraud. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, yeah. What did you think of the trailer overall, by the way? Oh, I just love it when we see background stuff like the adults arriving at Hogwarts and these kids just staring through the windows and it's like they've flipped the perspective now and I I just find that so exciting I love seeing what's going on like with the adults while the kids are just having a normal school life for once yeah that is an interesting point that they flipped the perspective where we haven't seen it like this before yeah Hmm. we get to see like the darker side I guess or just like the logistics I, I yeah. really love that. Um, and I love politics. Like my favorite parts of the books are the politics of between the ministry and the schools and all these families. So I feel like Fantastic Beasts is kind of made for me in that sense. Like it gives me that part that I've always wanted to see. And mm. since it's in the past, it also doesn't ruin your head canon. So it's nice. <laughs> <laughs> You can create new headcanon. All right, let's listen to another voicemail. Hi, guys. This is Kevin from San Diego. I was just listening to your most recent episode, and uh, Micah and Eric were talking about how there have been some changes at Pottermore. Um, I'm kind of happy to hear that the format of Pottermore is going to be changing. You know, over the last few years, how it had kind of become a BuzzFeed for Harry Potter specifically, and it just felt like there was no real quality content coming out of it. Um, I wish it would go back to the deep exploration in the books and the revealing of information about the world that J.K. Rowling was doing. And I feel like that's what got the fandom all really excited about Pottermore in the beginning. And I think it just kind of lost its way. Um, That's just my feedback. Thanks, guys, for for making the podcast every week. I really love listening to it. Thanks. Thanks, Kevin. Um, I completely agree with you. I think, like I was saying earlier, the stuff that they used to feature was a lot more interesting than the stuff they've been producing recently. So maybe they will get back to that, but I actually think it's going to take a little restraint from JK Rowling. She's going to have to stop tweeting all her cool Harry Potter stuff. Save it for Pottermore. That's, that's your site. Yeah. See, that's also something like there's all of this information revealed over Twitter, but there's no way of like cataloging it. There's no way of accessing that. And I am pretty surprised. Like, Again, I would have expected Rawlings like to be more related to Pottermore. I would have expected them to kind of be working together more. But yeah. I also kind of, I'm not sure if when they fired those writers, they did it with like a vision for the future. I wonder, Right. They might not have a plan yet. Because to me, it was a bit like sudden. Maybe just like we can't afford to do this anymore and we should just kind of step back and wait until we had come up with a better idea. Um, I hope they have yeah, a maybe. better idea, but maybe it's better that they bring in new people who can think of something. more. We, yeah. I mean, you say it was sudden. We don't know how long they'd been thinking about it. Like we just, and if it wasn't for that Buzzfeed report, we may have never known yeah. unless one day we were like, Hey, there's seems to be less stuff on Potter more recently. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I would love to see JK Rowling. Maybe do a couple Q&As on Pottermore.com. 
answer some questions yeah. that people frequently ask you. Like she used to do that on her old, old website. That, that site was the best. Uh, that existed before Pottermore. And we used to love looking at that site to see what was new because like she didn't have Twitter back then either. And there was, I mean, there was no social media. We had to go to the website and see if there was anything new that day. Wake up, have a cup of coffee, see if jkrolling.com was updated. Is there a do not disturb sign on the door today? Has it been removed? It was so exciting. Are pen and paper still her priority? Yes. Um, when will it not be? But do you remember when like Disney Channel would, as part of their ads, so, like do promos of High School Musical and stuff in between shows? I can't say I okay. did, but carry on. <laughs> I'm like really showing you a very specific time in my life. Um, <laughs> so there was this time where like they would have their movies and their shows or whatever. And then when they were doing Chronicles of Narnia or like High School Musical 3, I remember in between shows as part of their ads, they would have like some like two or three minute um, kind of like behind the scenes or some interviews or like, you would see mm. the people who would make the costumes. You would see the people doing the special effects. And mm. I feel like Pottermore could do that. I mean, we aren't getting a lot of behind-the-scenes content in general. We never really have as a fandom. But I feel like that's mm. something that fans would really be interested about. And we could, they could just kind of, they wouldn't even have to spoil it for us. They could just kind of give us glimpses that things that they're working on. They could interview Eddie Redmayne. I mean, people would go to see that. We would go to see that. Yeah, absolutely. By the way, speaking of J.K. Rowling and Twitter, I can't remember if this was brought up on the last episode or not. Um, J.K. Rowling has finished her next book, Lethal White. That's the latest in the Corman Strike series, which I love. Um, it's taken her a couple of years to do it. She she admitted that this one's taken a lot longer than the others have. Um, so it'll be interesting to see why it's taken so long. I, I just think... She's a busy, busy woman, obviously, but it has sounded like it's just been a challenging book to write. Mm-hmm. Um, it might be very complex, more complex than the others. So I'm very excited to see this. We don't have a release date yet, but since it's finished, I would imagine it could be out by this year, by the end of the year. Anyway, uh, let's listen to another voicemail. Hi, guys. My name is Kevin. I'm there you go. Uh, and I was just listening to your episode where you're discussing the new Sky. Wizarding World logo. And I gotta say, I kind of agree with Micah that I don't really have a lot to say about it. I work in marketing myself, and the, the logo to me just kind of looks very corporate and pretty obvious, all the choices that they made. Um, so yeah, I, I agree with Micah. I don't think it's really very interesting, and I think maybe the fandom is getting a little too excited about it, because really, it's just a marketing tool. Thanks, guys. Love the podcast. I'm a relatively new listener, um, so I look forward to hearing what you guys have to say. Bye. Yeah, I, I guess we won't dig too back, too far back into the Wizarding World logo. Uh, a lot of, a lot of uh, people who aren't for it out there. Did you like it though? Um, I just keep thinking that it would look really cool over a gate. Over a gate. Yeah, like when hmm. you're walking into like the Wizarding World or something, and then you have like like over the arch of the gate. Yeah. That's all I can think about. That's what it makes me think of immediately when I see it. Uh, I think it's cool. I think it's pretty cool. I don't know like if there's much significance to the arrangement of the wands or things like that, but I think yeah. it's, I think it's beautiful. And yeah, I don't know. I, I was thinking of putting the wizarding world logo, the new logo on my Potter Morum 
mock-up that I made for the site, but then I thought Pottermore might get bad at me if I used the logo. Uh. <laughs> so I decided not to do that. All right, let's listen to one more voicemail today. Hey guys, this is Chloe calling from LA. I wanted to respond to a point from episode 361 where Micah and Eric were theorizing that we might see Grinda Wald kill the Minister of Magic at some point. Um, I, came apart of, I came across a part of Deathly Hallows that says Grindelwald never extended his reign of terror to Great Britain, but given that did come from Rita Skeeter's book. So that said, do you think it's likely that we could see a cover-up of something monumental like the murder of a Minister of Magic, or how much do you foresee Grindelwald being involved with the ministry in the UK as we know it? Hmm. I would love to hear your thoughts. And I'm looking forward to hearing the show. Bye. Well, I would say we're not going to see him. I'd say the chances are going to be low if we're working on the assumption that the next few movies aren't going to be based in the UK. We know that this one's going to be set in Paris. And the impression we've received is that each film is going to be set somewhere else. So I'm not sure how he would get over there and then kill the Minister of Magic. Um, that would be cool, though, especially if it was a cover-up, and that would kind of harken back to the Harry Potter books, and but they're kind of being a cover-up in regards to Voldemort being back. What do you think, Nassim? Oh, I have so many thoughts about this. Um, specifically, I mean, at least my impression has always been that this kind of, that there were families in Great Britain that were kind of a part of, like, were supporters of him. So... I don't know, like, we, we've already seen the strangers um, being involved. I can totally imagine the old, old Malfoys being involved. Um, maybe even funding him in different ways. Mm. I don't know, I can see that being a part of it, because it also makes sense, just like, given, um, like, Nazi Germany and all the parallels, that you would have, you know, kind of quiet supporters among the rich people um, yeah. all around the continent. and. I don't know. I kind of, I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing that aspect. I hope that there is that kind of complexity to it. Yeah. I mean, something has to happen for Dumbledore to decide enough is enough and go himself to defeat. Right. So we have to see what exactly that breaking point is going to be. Yeah. Well, maybe one breaking point could be that Newt just fails in this next film. I think it would be nice to see, oh, Newt, it it would be nice to see Newt not saving the day again. Mm -hmm. Like, is that going to happen in every movie? What if he gets some failure to kind of knock him down a couple notches? And then maybe Dumbledore could step in that way and be like, all right, I have to do this myself. I can't, I can't be doing this pig for slaughter thing all the time. Yeah, like, I don't know. I feel like they're definitely going to have to touch on that. Dumbledore's weird obsession with making other people do things for him. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> think he's too powerful or whatever. I mean, come on. Um, no, it's not that, is it? Dumbledore doesn't think he's too powerful. I think I'm too good Gandalf, for this. There's a Gandalf thing, you know, where he's like, "Oh, if through me, it would wield too great of a power." Um, mm. I don't know. It would be interesting, but I feel like this next movie will probably have a lot of focus on the friendships between the characters. So. Mm-hmm. Probably Tina will have more of an active role in what happens. Maybe, maybe Newt will lose his brother in this next one, and and in number two, 
And then that'll knock Newt down a couple notches. Like they could lose their battle against Grindelwald, assuming there is one at the end of this movie. And then mm-hmm. Newt will just be devastated by it. And then maybe that's how Newt will potentially, I don't know, get close with Lita again. No, I think Lita is going to be evil. Kind of feel like. Oh, yeah. That's what I feel. Like maybe, she, I feel like she's kind of manipulative. But. I don't know. We're just speculating at this point, I guess. <laughs> but, yeah. Yeah. It, it's going to be interesting. I, I really have no idea where this is going to go. I just want them to really yeah. explore Dumbledore and Grindelwald's relationship. And it doesn't look yeah. like they're doing that in this movie. So. No, no, not explicitly. <laughs> uh, we have a few people listening live on patreon.com slash mugcast right now. Thanks for joining us on this Easter Sunday morning. Jennifer says, I could see a good cliffhanger end of movie two with Newt trying something and falling and the movie really failing and the movie really trying to hook viewers to come to the next movie to resolve it. Yeah. Oh, and then Dumbledore puts on his half moon spectacles and says, the game is on. And the game is on. <laughs> I will help you, Newt. James says, Grindelwald killing Theseus is a strong possibility, I think. Theseus is Newt's brother. Yeah. Uh, Daisha, hope I'm pronouncing your name right, says maybe Theseus starts out good and then he changes to Gwald's side. Hmm. Ooh, that would be very interesting. Like yeah, you have this whole thing of like, um, at what point do you have to turn against your own family? Yeah, uh, and then it's kind of. Sorry. Well, I was just gonna say there's also kind of a parallel there: Newton, Theseus against each other, Dumbledore and Grindelwald yeah. against each other. That would be really interesting. Mm-hmm. Does J.A. Rowling sit there and speculate over all this like like we do? I mean, I, 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 I does she think about it as much as we do? <laughs> I hope she does. <laughs> I hope so, too. I think she needs like a whole brain trust to do this. I mean, we need like 10 people to talk through all this. How does she do it all by herself? I don't know. And I mean, and it's with the screenwriters. I bet they sit on a big table and they have like a board with like red string connecting everything. Oh, yeah. Could you imagine? Yeah. Imagine I mean, getting we a look also at that have board. That, but, you know. Yeah, I have one in my bedroom <laughs> trying to keep track of all our theories. <laughs> all right. I think we'll wrap it up there. Let's do a little quizage before we close out the episode. So last week, the question was, in Chamber of Secrets, what three nonsense spells does Harry aim at the bush before Dudley calls for his mother? The answer was Hocus Pocus, Jiggery Pokery, and Squiggly Wiggly. <laughs> Winners of Quizich include Sean Brady, Haley Hansen, and Saladas, Victoria Rose, and Burgundy Family. So nice job, y'all. Uh, we played this game over on Twitter, twitter.com slash MuggleCast. Feel free to answer by tweeting us as soon as you hear the question asked on the episode. This week's question, book four. What does Imposter Moody make Lavender Brown do under the Imperious Curse in the classroom scene from Goblet of Fire? Answer by going to twitter.com slash MuggleCast. Also, just check out MuggleCast.com. We have a complete archive of episodes. Some of the older ones are inaccessible at the moment. We're working on that. We will have them all fixed in due course. 
Thanks to special thanks to all you new listeners out there. It's always nice to hear from you. Feel free to tweet us or email us. Let us know. Hey, I recently discovered the show through what? Spotify? iTunes search? Nassim's parents? How did you how did you find the show? Let us know. We always love hearing how people discover the show. It helps us grow the show too, so we can uh, you know, figure out how people find us. We'd also love your support over at patreon.com slash mugglecast. It is the reason why we are weekly. And we do have a few spots left, actually, in the 777 challenge. Even though we are over that number um, on Patreon, you'll see we're you'll see we're at close to 850, which is amazing. Thank you so much to all of you who have pledged. Um, we, we're still under $805 plus patrons. There's about 30 spots left, so you can still get in there. Um, and if you're behind on uh, on your pledges, if you were recently declined, make sure you update your information so you can uh, be active again. And then that way you will get one of these mugs later this year. Thanks to everybody, again, who's uh, listening live on Patreon right now. It's nice to have you joining us and chiming in and discussing with fellow listeners. All right. Thanks, everybody. We will be back. Uh, I think all three of us will be back on uh, next episode. And uh, Nassim, we'll have to have you on again sometime. You were great. Thank you. I love to be on. Did you tell your mom that you were on the episode? I did. And they were like, oh, that's so cool. And I was like, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) How old are you, by the way? I'm 22. Oh, you're so young. You that's say so like nice. your old granddaughter. Well, yeah. Oh, that's so nice. That's so wonderful, Nassim. Young blood on the show. <laughs> I'm about to exit my 20s. I'm, well, not about to. I'm 28, but. Yeah, that's crazy to me because I, I guess I just feel like you guys are closer to me in age. You are, Nassim's like this. much more mature than me. You're the well. youngest writer on Hypeable and you're also like the sweetest. I'm oh, so glad we found you. you. Yeah. Thank you. And smartest, by the way. Check out Nassim's writing. She's she's got some great stuff over on Hyperbomb. <laughs> Thank you. Proud to say. Absolutely. <laughs> All right. We'll see everybody next time. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>